running a little bit uh, early here for the question period, but I'm thinking there will be a lot of questions to s be uh, answered here. So uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about SACPA. It's a nonprofit organization, and we hold true to our word. We are, in fact, nonprofit. But so anything that you can do to help is great, like buying memberships from Manalise or whatever else you can do to promote SACPA is much appreciated. Uh, I also like to thank our partners, uh, UofL is a big supporter of uh, SACPA. They do actually support us financially as well. Also, uh, Country Kitchen Catering, I think we should uh, appreciate them. They serve us a pretty nice meal for very reasonable money. Also to Shaw TV, who uh, broadcast our uh, presentation part of the of the session every week at uh, let me see here 4:30 and 10:30 each day, pretty much throughout the week, and it's also available on YouTube. Uh, f uh, by by the time next week rolls around, it'll be up on the YouTube channel, and you can click on that on our website. Uh, CKXU Radio at the university is also a supporter of SACPA. They do occasionally uh, broadcast our sessions, but this year so far they haven't uh, managed to find any volunteers to do it. Uh, the Lethbridge Herald, much appreciated. They give a nice summary of our sessions every week and also other media who uh, come by and interview our presenters. Uh, without further ado, we better get started on our question period. So when you go up to the mic, uh, please state your name and uh, keep your preamble so I don't have to cut you off type of thing. <laughs> and uh, go ahead and ask your question. Welcome back to the stage, Cal. Hi. Hi. I'm Bev Mendel-Atherstone. Thank you very much for your talk. Okay, thank you. It, it seemed more like an ad than um, anything else. Uh, I was very interested to hear that it will be coke coal for making steel. I was just in Sweden this summer tracing my ancestor, great-grandfather who made steel in Sweden, so that's, that's good to hear. Um, you mentioned the num numerous jobs that we brought, brought in, but um, I didn't see anything that explained whether they were full-time equivalent jobs or just temporary jobs. At one point you did say these jobs would be for a certain period of time. And you also mentioned, in contrast to tourism, that these jobs would have benefits. So I have, there's two parts to my question. One is, how many full-time equivalent jobs would there actually be? And then the other part is, <coughs> would you then be bringing in unions to assure that you have uh, good, not only well-paying jobs, but the workers also have good working conditions? Uh, I ask this because my grandfather was a, a, a gold miner, 
and died of silicosis of the lungs. So there are some uh, very big problems inherent in mining. Thank you. No, thanks for your question. So <clears throat> real quickly, uh, the direct jobs or full-time equivalent that would be employed while we're in operations is three, about, we estimate right now, 395 full-time equivalent jobs during operations. Uh, during construction, we'll employ up to 1,800 people, various trades that will come in at different times. So uh, I think we peak, this is what this figure shows, um, at peak, we estimate there'll be about 160 people, but I don't, you'd have to figure out what the average of this was to sort of understand what the full-time equivalent for that period during construction would be. Um, so that's the answer to that. In terms of the unions, I have no idea. Um, way too early in the whole process right now. Uh, we're going to be in a regulatory review here for the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Uh, then we'll be moving into construction. Um, I think, you know, I'm not a human resources person, I'm sort of environment regulatory, so I have no idea what what uh, might be happening in terms of unions at this stage. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you. Um, you, uh, well, my name is Alvin. Uh, you talked about the, uh, the, the, the grade of coal that's uh, being shipped to overseas markets. And I'd like you to explain to me, and maybe everybody else here, what the difference is uh, in, in terms of uh, the environmental impact of burning that coal, whether it be here or in China or India or any, anywhere else, what the difference, uh, what the impact uh, difference is, uh, burning coal to create steel or burning coal to generate electrical energy, say. Uh, I'm very confused on that. I, I, I don't think shipping our uh, our coal to another a foreign jurisdiction um, is uh, helping uh, solve environmental issues. Uh, your thoughts? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, burning a carbon source, whether it's coal, thermal coal, uh, metallurgical coal, oil, gas, it, you're burning carbon for energy. And so the byproduct is... CO2 or what have you, right? So it makes some difference. It all depends on the amount of carbon that's in the steel or in the coal when you burn it, right? In terms of what you release. Whether you burn that here or in China or Korea or Japan or Brazil or United States, it's still going to be uh, released wherever it, it happens, right? So um, that does that answer that part of the question, I think? Well, uh, you, you, you made a, a, a statement about the, uh, the uh, what is it, a metallurgical <coughs> yep. uh, type of coal. And, and, and uh, the emphasis was on don't, don't ask questions about, the coal, about this coal because it's, it's different than the coal right. that we... Now, that's, what's, that's what brought about this question. Sure, so okay. Let me clarify. You're not making a distinction there for right. me. I think what I was referring to, alluding to more, is that I'm not here to talk about the the uh, thermal coal industry or the burning of coal-fired generators to produce power. I have no expertise or background in that. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Mr. Clark, uh, my name is Frank J. Toth. I'm an ex-coal miner an ex-organizer for the United Mine Workers of America, and I'm concerned, this question is already asked, but it took you the last two minutes 
to tell us what type of coal, whether it's bituminous or anthracite, to tell us what kind of coal. So relative to the, the lack of the knowledge, uh, my question is pretty well wiped out because I, I've been, I just wrote the three newspapers and also the new coal mine opening up right now also in Nova Scotia. So I, I wrote them a letter that finally, uh, within the last 48 hours, National Geographic reported that SAS Power, Saskatchewan Power, just initiated the very first uh, greenhouse-free uh, generating plant, coal-fired generating plant. So, uh, so I, uh, the basic question is: is what what union are you gonna are you gonna allow for the different trades in your operation? In the, in that I was involved in it myself. Right. You know, I appreciate that, and th and thanks for sharing your your past history on that that's fascinating because I'm not a union guy I don't know much about unions I'm not a human resources person I, I it, as I said in the previous question it's early days in this project yet we're still sort of at that initial do we do we have the approval to even proceed with this project and once that is established then we get into the more detailed engineering and so on that's when decisions like that, and, and that's not my background at all to talk about, so. And I can't answer that, and you know, I don't know. Uh, but one question real quick, if I could just take a sec to follow up quick. One of the comments that you made about technology is, you know, fossil fuels, coal technology, innovation and technology is always happening. And one of the one of the things that I was just reading an article about lately is, is the use of coal and coal dust, actually, uh, to improve the efficiency of uh, fuel burned in aviation fuel, in jet flight and that it can improve the quality of or the efficiency of the engines how how much power they get etc and reduce the actual you know other fossil fuel consumption as a result so there's lots of different uses for carbon uh, out there uh, including you know thermal coals and so on so we're learning more things all the all the time when it comes to coal yeah thank you mr. chair uh, my name is Joseph Natuck and a former regulator of uh, energy production in Saskatchewan. Um, I wanted to have w make one observation. I'm totally impressed with the changes that have been made in the last 25 years and improving the environmental situation, you know, the, the environment and the how, how energy is produced, especially with coal. But I, I'd like to, I'd like to uh, go back, uh, or I want you to project a little bit, I guess. You know, how long do you think it will take before we're totally phased out of coal, or maybe not out of coal, but using it as a, as a potential, uh, actually emitter or the eventual, no emission at all, zero, zero emissions in, in the future, say 25 years, would that be a good guess, or are we going to get into other s sources of energy, like uh, producing uh, gas out of, you know, non-polluting gas out of coal or whatever? Do you have any, I'm just, 
Maybe yeah. it's not an unrealistic question, but I'd like to get some opinion. I'm getting on in years. I want to see what the future has. Thank you. You know, and, and I share your same comments. Um, my, I take him off my, my Riversdale Benga hat for a second. And for uh, prior to joining here, I worked at Synovus Energy, and uh, I was one of the people that helped set up uh, Canada's Oil Sands Innovation Alliance, or COSIA, uh, which was a body that looked at many questions like that. How do we speed up the rate of innovation and improve environmental performance so that, you know, we can manage the issues better and, and, and do things more efficiently and, and and innovation, the pace of innovation is is unprecedented right now. I mean there's there's things happening all the time. Um, the reality of where we face in getting, you know, shifting off of that fossil fuel dependency is I I'd like to say that it can happen sooner than 25 years, and it might because the pace of innovation is there. But I think the reality is that even though things are moving quickly, we still haven't found viable options to replace what certain fossil fuels provide, and that is the ability to store energy in a cheap, face, uh, efficient way to use it in future times. Um, you know, alternative energy sources like solar and, and wind are still dependent on, on climatic factors beyond our control. What happens when those things aren't aligned with our needs or consumption? Um, the, the transportation uh, element, how do you move cargo, merchandise, vast distances um, efficiently and cheaply uh, without a, a storable fuel source? So while I think we all support and would agree that there is a need uh, for the sake of the planet to move away from fossil fuels, how quickly that can happen is anybody's guess right now. I think there'll be a lot of speculation, um, but I don't know that anybody has a real answer for that yet. My name is Van Christou. Uh, we aging Canadians uh, are always concerned about foreign overtake of our resource uh, background. Uh, could you, Cal, please describe uh, Riversdale Corporation, uh, its structure, and what else it's involved in, and its track record in other uh, operations throughout the world? I, I'll do my best, but uh, you know, and I might have to call on Keith here to help me out. I only joined Riversdale in July, so I, I haven't met the board of directors yet. Riversdale has been in the coal industry for quite some time. Uh, its managing director and the board of directors for Riversdale are all experienced coal people, um, having worked for many major coal, coal operations, BHP, uh, Rio Tinto, Anglo-American. Um, a lot of depth of experience there when it comes to the coal mining and coal industry. Um, so. So in terms of our background, I mean, I would refer anybody to go look at our website. There is good summaries of all of our, our board, board and, and the history. Uh, we have been involved, I think this is our fifth project that the sort of the core group, um, directors and managing director have been engaged in, in terms of a project. And of course, the inevitable question that a lot of people have is, are you just doing this, get the approval, develop it, then you're going to flip it or sell it, right? And, and that's a that's a tough one um, because, again, crystal ball, as you all know, we live in a free market economy and right now we're privately funded and so we have all absolute control of what's happening in terms of the project, uh, us and our investors, our immediate investors. When 
we move to the next phase, assuming we get an approval to develop, um, that's when, you know, it becomes raising the capital needed to get a project like this up and running. And so, you know, the focus right now is raising that investment capital. Um, it's going to be, you know, somewhere getting, approaching a billion dollars to develop a project like this. That's an enormous amount of capital to raise, especially in this day and age. Um, so there's various mechanisms. What mechanism we do, I don't know. I'm not the guy. That's a, a question for our board and, and our CEO. But one option always is to issue shares and go public. Many companies do that. That's how they raise their capital. Once a company goes public and issues shares, anything can happen. And somebody can come along and snap up all the shares and we're bought up. We don't have control over that. So um, there are rules in Canada for protecting resources. So Benga is a Canadian company. Um, we can, you know, we uh, really don't know what might happen in the future in terms of somebody coming in and, and buying us up. I mean, we do it elsewhere as well as Canadian companies. So it's hard to say. It no, it's private. Hi, Cal. Uh, my name is Jim Rennie. Uh, I'm a geologist. Uh, I lived in the Crow's Nest Pass for a number of years. I currently... Okay. Is that a little better? Okay. Yeah. My name is Jim Rennie. I'm a geologist. I did live in the Crow's Nest Pass for a number of years. I currently live in Lethbridge. I have a question for you. If you could please put up the slide that you showed with the plan, with the outline of the mine on the map. Okay, um, now those little blue ponds that are shown on the east side, yep. which occupy some tributaries to Gold Creek. Correct. Uh, what is going into those ponds? So that's to capture runoff mm -hmm. from the mountain. Um, and any, they're, they're sediment ponds. In other words, right now we've got legacy, right? We've got a lot of disturbance and loose right. material. So those ponds are to capture any material that comes down off the steep slopes here on the side and prevent any sediment from getting into Gold Creek. So when you said no tailings ponds, then these are actually sediment ponds. Correct. To collect uh, some of the other runoff. Just from, from runoff, yeah. Yes. Um, which will contain selenium. Uh, not likely, no. They won't be. The water coming off here will not have been in contact with the rock long enough to have gathered selenium. Because the selenium rock is not exposed at the surface. The outline of, this is my last question, the outline of the total mine shown on that map uh, along the east side, that outline uh, encompasses, yeah, encompasses the upper reaches of those tributaries. Correct. Now, is that because those are, that's going to be covered with tailings or is that because that's actually going to be dug up? It'll be dug up. It'll be dug up, and that's in pursuit of coal seam number two and number four, which are deeper, uh, basically. That I can't answer because I'm not sure, but it sounds... Given, about, given yeah. the geometry. Yeah, and I don't so know where it is. A lot of faulting going on, so which seams are going to be excavated okay, at so what point. I don't know. Okay. That, I'll let somebody else ask a question. Thank you. Super. Thanks. Mm. Hi, Lauren. 
Hi, Cal. Lauren Fitch. Cal, you started with an interesting history of the Crow's Nest Pass. And uh, one thing you might have missed is the uh, boom and bust cycle in coal mm -hmm. and the uh, list of dead and defunct coal mines, which should provide us a sense of history of coal. And if that history is a guide to the future, maybe a roadmap that should be followed. But I want to go back to a previous questioner who asked what the experience was of Riversdale in terms of mining. So I'll ask it a different way. How many coal mines does Riversdale currently operate? None. And so your contention that uh, the selenium issue is going to be dealt with with a saturated backfill, I think that was your term, that has never been tested, I sense, with any of your operations because you don't have any operations. Right. It's being tested right now with both tech in the Elk Valley and also uh, there's some work being done at Grand Cash Coal. Um, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned Grand Cash. Um, I wonder if the good residents of Grand Cash, having had a promotional item like yours presented to them in the past, how they feel today with the mine shut down. Well, I imagine they're quite upset. Okay, thanks, Cal. Hi, my name is Kevin Turner. I'm from the Crow's Nest Pass. I uh, operate as a naturalist out there independently. How you doing, Cal? Good. How are you? Good. Hi, Keith. Cal and I first met on the day I reported the release of coal and other substances from the east flank of Grassy Mountain into Gold Creek. I had filed a formal report with DFO that morning, and my due diligence as a proponent under the act requires me to inform Riversdale of that act, of that event, if not, if uh, they weren't already aware. Um, that was the day Cal started work at Riversdale. In a meeting approximately 10 days later with Cal and Keith and myself, we discussed the release event and the nature of the spoils piles on the east flank of Grassy Mountain. Spoils 1 and 2, which the federal investigators now also refer to them as, are primarily coal finds. At that time, Cal's contention was that that was a natural scree slope, which naturally occurring rainfall had followed a coal seam into, thus mobilizing it into Gold Creek. <coughs> Things in the Crow's Nest Pass since that day have not been so good. My interactions with Cal and Keith have been dubious and difficult. Cal has continued his contention in regards to that slide Christ. and other things, and we now find ourselves in a situation of significant social unrest in the Crow's Nest Pass, which can be viewed on the Crow's Nest Network or coal mining in the, coal mining in the Old Man Headwaters Facebook page. My question to Cal is, question. do you feel you made a good decision taking the job with Riversdale Resources and moving your family into this situation? Um, my family and I are happy to be living in the Crow's Nest Pass and I'm happy working at Riversdale. Thank you. Hello everybody, I'm Shannon Frank with the Old Man Watershed Council and I've been reviewing the environmental impact assessment online and I encourage everybody to do so. There's uh, lots of information on the federal um, um, environmental impact website and I can give you the link and um, I encourage people to get involved and, and speak up about their thoughts, whether they're for or against, it's important to be involved. And um, my question is, in reviewing the environmental impact assessment, there is a statement that there will be direct removal of watercourses and reaches, but it's not really explained 
and I couldn't figure out exactly what that meant. And right. I, like I recognize that there will be impacts <coughs> to aquatic habitat and fish and wildlife and all that is explained, but this statement I was curious about. Yeah, yeah no, so in fairness, I mean, first we have this map up here. Um, so if you were to look at the outline of the project footprint, there are, as was already mentioned, I think one of the other questions, uh, tributaries, right, that come down off the, the slopes of, and drainages that come off the grassy mountain, down into either Blairmore on the west side or Gold Creek on the, on the east side. Uh, um, those tributaries will be affected. Uh, there will, will be some, some disturbance through creation of the pits or, or as a result of the stockpiles. Um, but none of those direct impacts are going to be in any of the main stems. And I think the total loss of critical habitat, if we're getting into the fish questions here, um, is about half a hectare, I believe, about just over an acre is the expected loss of critical habitat for which we are now working to develop uh, offset compensation plans. Yeah, it says that there will be a predicted loss of 538 square meters of, aqua of aquatic habitat. Yep. Um, so it so works out to about half a hectare. Yeah, so just to, just to clarify, so the, the tributaries um, to Golden Blairmore Creeks will be removed. Yeah, but they're too steep, right, to house fish. Right. It's you know it's how they're defined but they do bring in other materials right like food and nutrients and so on but yeah are they ephemeral yeah. then or permanent streams? ephemeral for the most part okay yeah and that's um that's part of the application which will be reviewed by the feds and the province yep. um and i i guess i'm struggling with that because i I presume that was illegal before in the f under the Fisheries Act, but with the changes to the Fisheries Act, that's now allowed? Or do you know what, what's going no, on? No, it's not illegal. It's just that in order to, if you're going to have an impact on critical habitat uh, for fish, that would, or, you know, so you have, to talk, you have to discuss what mitigation, and there's always been this opportunity to look at offsets as a, as a tool to um, mitigate any impacts from loss of critical habitat. So you can try and, if you impact it here, you can do something to restore it or reestablish it elsewhere. And fortunately, we're in, unfortunately for the fish, but we're in a situation with both Blairmore and Gold Creek where these are heavily impacted streams. There are lots of opportunities to improve the critical habitat for fish within those watersheds and in adjacent watersheds. And that's what we're going to be looking at with the government here in the next uh, few months. Okay. So are you in conversation then with the recovery teams? We are pretty <laughs> To a large extent, yes. The, the answer is yes. And a lot of the work that's been done in terms of cutthroat recovery in that part of the world has been us lately. We just uh, finished a genetic study of Blairmore Creek with Alberta Energy or Environment and Parks. And those results are just, I think, coming out now. So, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, one of our big mitigations is a, uh, um, and it's contained in our EIA, is a discussion. We are working with grassroots initiatives, uh, local conservation groups, and the government to establish an aquatic uh, stewardship program for both Gold and Blairmore Creeks. 
Uh, we've also engaged um, the University of Lethbridge. Dr. Rasmussen is on uh, working with us now, as is his lab. And we have a grad student that's beginning here in the spring to look at uh, some key questions around uh, western cutthroat and those two watersheds and help identify critical habitat and all, in, all work that goes directly towards the uh, implementation of the recovery action plan for West Slope Cutthroat. And as far as I know, there's not a lot else going on. Hi, my name is Henning Mundel. And I really know nothing about the industry, and particularly not in the 21st century. Uh, you showed us some slides at the beginning of coal mines from the uh, middle, uh, let's say for the sake of argument, middle of the 20th century and a lot of them were just abandoned as it were. So what are the plans, what are the requirements now yep. for sort of end of life, if I would use that term, and, uh, um, and uh, in relation to leaving the place or doing to the place, and I also want sort of put in a cautionary note, you come from Sonovis and we've seen great PR about the, in the, in the north, the landscapes back to original. No, no naturalist agrees that that's back to original. So I don't think you can do that. Yeah, I mean, restoration, reclamation is not about um, putting things back exactly the way they are. Um, particularly in a case where, you know, you're mining and you're moving earth around and dirt around and so on. The requirements in terms of uh, reclamation uh, is to put things back in terms of a productivity uh, that is similar or better than what it was there before. It may look a little different, uh, but in terms of its capacity to support biota, uh, flora and fauna, that it is comparable to what was there previously. And you're right. I mean, it, ecosystems take a long time to reestablish and, and regrow. And, you know, even in the oil sands, for instance, and I've spent a lot of time working up there, there's, um, you know, believe it or not, they're still fairly young uh, in terms of being able to measure whether or not those techniques are, are actually successful and we are actually reestablishing them. And that's just a fact of, of the world we're in and ecological, understanding ecological time versus real time. As people, we want answers now. We want them immediately. We're concerned about risks. And of course, uh, nature can take a long time to reestablish. In the case of a peatland, it might take centuries. Uh, for forests, it's decades. So, you know, it's a fair question. And, and I think, you know, that's why we have regulators. That's why we have uh, experts in the field. We continue to do a lot of research and innovation and, and explore and monitor. And that's really an integral part of what we'll be doing as part of this project is there are a lot of experiences. We've been mining a long time. We know a lot, a lot more than we did 50, 60 years ago. So a lot of the legacy that's there is, is there because that's how they did it then. They didn't care or they didn't uh, have the rules and regulations that we have today. So we're held to a much different standard and it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. But over the last decades, uh, we have learned a lot and I think back to even my own career when I started working in, in as an environmental consultant I worked up in the North Country in the oil sands back in 96. At the time there were two oil sands projects in Crude and Suncor. They were building Albion Sands and then over the next 15 years I worked on 23 major project development EIAs. I witnessed firsthand the transformation in that part of the world and uh, were mistakes made? Absolutely. 
do mistakes continue to be made? Sure. But part of, I mean, humans, we always make mistakes. It's what we learn from them and how we adapt. And I think one of the key things around reclamation, it's an integral part of our application. We have a conceptual reclamation plan in there now. As the details of the project become more s cemented, we get into the fine points of what size nut and bolt and where this is going and that's going and, and start managing the project. One of the key lessons learned over the last while is how to be adaptive, how to be watching, vigilant, see when things occur, and then be able to react and adapt to it. And that's part of what we're, we're doing and that's where a lot of the success stories, because there are a lot of success stories out there and that's what we're trying to learn from and embrace. So a lot of the project design integrated a lot of environmental ish, uh, management and mitigation right into the design. I mean, we were building this plane as we were flying it, and uh, to use that analogy, and so as the engineers were working on developing a plan, we, our environmental group that was working on the assessment was right there beside them saying, no, you can't do that, you gotta do this. Here's an issue, be aware of it. And we continue to do that now as we work through the optimization and uh, move forward with some of our other licensing applications. We, we are, being super vigilant to understand what the effects are of each of our decisions and uh, and trying to understand those trade-offs, right? So. Cheryl, not only do you get to ask the last question today, you also was presented with a certificate <laughs> of appreciation for your volunteer work at the 55 plus Winter Games a year ago almost. So it's your lucky day. <laughs> I'm Cheryl Bradley, and Knud has been bogarting my uh, certificate of appreciation for a year. <laughs> Cal, thank you for your presentation. I, I think we have a marvelous wildland landscape in our, the southwest part of our province. Um, it, would, it would rival anything else in the world. And I guess I've been concerned in watching it over 40 or 50 years that I've been involved in environmental work in Alberta. I've been concerned at the death of a thousand cuts. I know Simon very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you opened, the t you opened the conversation in that you addressed tourism at the start of your talk. And you threw out some numbers, um, but you sort of suggested that coal mining was the best way to go for the Crow's Nest Pass. Mm. And um, I've been to communities adjacent to wildlands throughout the Western United States, and I've seen how those communities who had a legacy of coal mining uh, decided to go a different path, and they've really succeeded. And it's not just tourism short-term job dollars that comes to those communities. It's people wanting to live there. And so they come, they build their homes, and they bring resources with them. And And so I guess I was just a little troubled how mm -hmm. narrowly you looked at um, what the future could be for the Crow's Nest Pass. And I'm worried that, I guess, this just suggests we're going forward by looking through the rearview mirror, given the legacy of coal projects in um, many communities 
in Western North America. And so I just like your sure. your comments on that and to know if you share a bigger view. Yeah, no, and absolutely. I do share a big view. I'm very holistic in my thinking, I think. And, um, and, and I apologize if I came across as I'm not trying to say that tourism or recreation won't work in the Crow's Nest Pass, but what I'm suggesting is it's not an either-or proposition. I think that you know the project that we're advocating is is something that can help support that dream that vision um, and that I think it's needed to support that dream or vision because the competition as you alluded to there's a lot of communities out there that have embraced this vision and it's quite often a vision based on a hope rather than something real, real or substantial and uh, I think what is important for communities to be vibrant and sustainable is that they have a diversified economy and not just rely on one magic pill that's going to solve everything and that's why we're not a magic pill but we're something that can help and we can hopefully lead to other other economic opportunities and diversification in the area that will help support a thriving vibrant community to c continue um, the natural wonders are there. They're going to still be there. Um, you know, the magnitude of this project, it's not uh, an either-or kind of proposition where if this project goes ahead, oh my gosh, we'll never have recreation or tourism there ever again. I disagree. I mean, there's been mining in that area. There's a history. There's a legacy of historical mining that exists today. It still has impacts on the landscape today um, that have been there for over 100 years. And I think we need to also recognize that the importance for families, I mean, I've located my family down there, Keith lives down there. Um, I'm, I'm as passionate about the environment as anybody, I would, I would argue, and, and I have concerns. But I've also been a realist, and uh, I'll share a little story with you quickly here. And uh, in 1991, I was a young ecologist. I was working for a consulting company in southern Ontario. And I had just returned from doing some winter wildlife work up in the Northwest Territories, now Nunavut. And uh, I got a call from my boss. And he said, Cal, you know something about owls, don't you? And I said, well, a little bit. I'd, I'd worked at a raptor rehabilitation uh, facility. And he said, good. Um, because we've just won a contract to do all the surveys for forest companies in Washington, Oregon for the spotted owl. And it was the year it had been uh, listed as endangered. And suddenly every forest company in the Pacific Northwest had, was required to do spotted owl surveys before they could harvest any of their timber sales. So I, uh, this was a Thursday. Sunday I was on a plane flying to Seattle where I spent the next year working with spotted owls. Um, and one thing that struck me then, because at that time I was, you know, I was a young idealist. I thought, hey, I'm an, I'm an ecologist and I'm going to save the world. And uh, what opened my eyes there is as I started touring around all these various little communities that were highly dependent on forestry as a key basis for their social and economic fabric. All the schools were funded by timber stumpage fees. Um, public schools and what what struck me as I drove around was little signs on the end of everybody's driveway saying this family supported by timber dollars and that more than anything and then there were other things that happened that were sort of on the other extreme but what struck me as I was watching 
the dynamics there between industry, government, regulations that had the best interests of, say, a species at heart, but did they accomplish what they were trying to do? Did it actually do something positive for the environment? Because it was sure wreaking havoc on the social and economic fabric of these, these communities. And I started to realize that it is about compromise, discussion, trade-off, and how do you find that common ground? How do you find those shared values that we as a society, it's always about extremism or fundamentalism, whether it's religion or environment versus big business or whatever, and it's like, how do we start to work together to build better communities and, and, and strength? So I bring that let those lessons now to my job that's what i'm trying to do uh, with riversdale and in, in the efforts that keith and the rest of the team there are trying to uh, establish in the community it's early days it takes a long time to build trust to build relationships and and to do the right thing and will we get it right every time absolutely not we're going to make mistakes we will um, but it's we just need to work and work together so uh, maybe i I've blathered on enough there, but anyways. Thank you very much for your coming to, coming to Lethbridge and tell us about it, Cal. Uh, 